Well, good morning. This is the audience participation part of the message today. Turn to your neighbor, tell them how you feel about my new haircut. <laughs> Go ahead. Just get it off your chest. We normally, we normally don't encourage this. We don't encourage talking about the pastor behind his back, but for today, we're just going to like, go ahead, you're going to do it anyway. Get it off your chest. Thank you, Rich. All right. Well, hey, whatever we do, please try to take me seriously today. I'm preaching the Bible now. But whatever, whatever we do, Whatever happens in the world, whatever happens on earth around us, whatever happens in our lives, we should, never, we should never have a final interpretation about what that means until we ask, what is God saying about that? What, and then what's heaven's opinion about what's happening? When we see world events around us, Christian people ought to always think, all right, this is what it looks like it's happening on earth. What does God think about that in his heaven? What's God's disposition toward this that's happening? This is what I'm thinking about doing. How does God feel about that? This is what um, someone said. What's God's view of that? In the book of Revelation, that's really what you have over and over again. You have things that are happening on earth, and then you have how they happened based on the control room of the universe, the throne of God in heaven. And we're going to see that today as we approach our text, which is Revelation chapter 8. The Lamb is going to open the seventh, uh, the final seal of the seven seals. If you remember, what happened, there was this scroll in heaven, and it was sealed seven times. And as the scroll was unrolled, with the unsealing of each of the seals, something happens on earth. And the something that happens on earth are judgments. So there are seven seals, which means there are going to be seven judgments that happen on earth. We know this is during the tribulation period that's covered in chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation. These are judgments that are going to happen on earth during the tribulation period. And the first seven of those judgments, they're called uh, seal judgments because they happen when a seal is open. And there in chapter 6, you notice that there were six of them. You would expect the seventh to immediately follow, but it doesn't. Chapter 7 is an interlude, a parenthesis, that goes uh, that talks about two groups of people. We talked about this last week. The 144,000 young, single, Jewish evangelists ministering believers, ministering during the tribulation and seeing a soul harvest of multitudes come to faith. And then you see the second group there in Revelation chapter 7, which is the great multitude which no man can number. And they're seen in heaven after having, been, after having died or been martyred for their faith. And they're around the throne in heaven and they're singing and speaking. And when they do that, then the four and twenty elders and the, and the angels all fall down and worship the one who sits on the throne and the lamb who was slain. And when you get to chapter 8 and verse 1, you have that final or the seventh of the seven seals. The surprise is that when the seventh seal opens, then it's kind of like a, a gift with a gift within it. Only that's not the right analogy. It's a judgment with seven judgments within it. The last, or the seventh seal, is going to have seven more judgments in it. And these are going to be called trumpet judgments because they happen when a trumpet sounds. And so this is a horrifying thing. 
It's what we're going to begin to read about. And so if you want a title uh, for today's message, if that matters uh, to you, a title, then I would say the title of the message, the, probably the most practical title would be the seal uh, of the, uh, the trumpet judgments, part one. The trumpet judgments, part one. Because in the first, uh, there are 13 verses in the chapter, and they're going to be about the trumpet judgments, except for the last three, which are going to be in, which will begin in chapter nine. So the Lamb opens the seventh and final seal, and as I said, it contains within it the trumpet judgments, or the judgments that happen when trumpet sounds. And guess what happens when the last trumpet sounds? That contains within it the judgments that happen when bowls of wrath are poured out. So, so all of the judgments, the twenty-one of them, are all contained in the sixth seal judgment. So it describes the whole pouring out of God's. Uh, judgment on the earth during the tribulation period in these seven seals and then in the seven trumpet judgments when trumpets blow and then in the seven judgments when bowls are poured out. And that's the way this is symbolically taught in the book of Revelation. It's really not complex. It's really very simple. In heaven, God is in control and he has extended his mercy to people over and over and over again. They've rejected his mercy. And as he said he was going to, now he's going to pour out his justice, his judgment, his wrath on the earth. He's, all through the Bible, this has been, people have had centuries of warning about this. And that's what's going to happen. When you see the descriptions of what's happening on earth, it's horrifying. When you just see the descriptions of what's happening on earth, in heaven at the same time, it's beautiful, it's orderly, it's worshipful, and there is the one who is on the throne, and the lamb, and the four and twenty elders, and the multitude which no man can number, and the angels, and they're all worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And there are these interludes from time to time, three of them in, in the text that we're studying here, what I mean, three of them in the chapters that cover the, the tribulation, that give glimpses of heaven, or what's happening to the saints in heaven, while the judgment of God is being poured out upon the earth. So it's a pretty sobering and ominous passage. I would remind you, I didn't write this. You knew that, right? And I I didn't decide that I was going to preach a message from now until way past Easter on the tribulation. Why are we doing that? Because around here, we don't come up with our own messages. We teach the Bible. We exhort from the Bible. We just say, okay, open the Bible. And most of the preaching here is just going from one chapter of the Bible to the next chapter of the Bible to the next chapter of the Bible because we just don't think anybody is creative enough and inspired enough to improve on the Bible to help people. The most helpful thing you need is whatever God says you need, whether or not you realize you need it. And in our turbulent times, when things on earth are happening that confuse us, it's good for us to say, well, Lord, what do we need to know? And then he will say, let me give you a revelation of what you need to know. Let me give you an apocalypse, an unveiling of what you need to know. You're not going to know everything, but I will tell you what you need to know. And when you look at it like that, it's so clear. Jesus is in control in heaven, and he is doing what he decides to do. And on earth, without God, there's chaos and judgment and heartache and, and demonic tribulation. And, and, it's, and, the, and I will just tell you ahead of time, you don't, you don't have to stick, stick around to the end, but I will tell you ahead of time that it, that it ends really well. The book ends in a very, very beautiful way. Just in case you didn't know that, that's true. So the seven trumpet judgments are probably the second half of the tribulation. We're going to go into the trumpet judgments now. 
And here's why I believe that the trumpet judgments are the second half of the tribulation, because in them horrible, horrifying things are going to happen that have never happened before and never will happen again, like half of the earth's population dying. That has never happened before. That has never happened before. That's a horrifying, horrifying thing. And Jesus was talking about the great tribulation in Matthew 24 when he said there will be such an outpouring of wrath that like has never been seen before and will never be seen again. So we know that there couldn't be something worse in the first half of the tribulation, get it? Because it's a one-time-only deal. Am I making sense logically? So that's why we believe that these judgments, which describe half of the earth's population, these trumpet judgments, or judgments that happens when, that God allows to happen when trumpets are sounded and the judgment comes to the earth, that they are describing the second half of the tribulation, or what we often refer to as the Great Tribulation. And that's why. So we know we, we have everything that we need because God has given us everything that we need. And so what we want to do right now is we want to read these 13 verses together. So let's take our Bibles and let's read Revelation chapter 8. The text today is Revelation chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. And they take us to the fourth trumpet judgment. This is the seventh seal or the last seal judgment which contains in it the trumpet judgments. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And now the first trumpet... Verse 7, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Second trumpet, verse 8, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the verses 10 and 11 is the third trumpet. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on the th- a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Verse 12, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were dark, and a third of the day did not shine, likewise the night. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So you kind of have like an interruption, if you will. It's kind of obviously not the whole story, but it is a beginning of the story of the judgments that, are, that happen on the earth during the tribulation when the trumpets are sounded. So here we have the seventh seal in verses 1 through 6. And it starts in an unusual way because it's been very noisy. I mentioned that last week, that it was noisy. You have noisy singing and noisy shouting and all kinds of things that are noisy. And then suddenly you have this silence. You, you never heard me do it, but if I was like silent for 30 seconds in the pulpit, it would get really weird. If I didn't speak for 30 seconds, 
you would just feel weird. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. If I stood here for 30 minutes and there was no noise at all in heaven that had been loud and cacophonous with praise, there is this sense of foreboding. These judgments are going to be horrifying. And I believe that's what this silence means. It's like, it's the, it's the, it's the silence. Someone said, an older Bible expository said that he lived through the air raids when the Blitzkrieg was attacking London and the sirens would sound and then it would get really quiet because everybody knew bombs were about to fall. And it would be very, it would, this is the kind of silence that's in heaven in chapter 8 when the seventh seal is broken. 30 minutes of just ominous silence. This is horrifying what's about to happen. And up to this point, it's been very loud. And there are these seven angels standing before God, given seven trumpets. So imagine the picture of this. Don't overcomplicate Revelation. Parts that you don't understand immediately should be interpreted by the parts that are very obvious. If you read this and you're not sure how much of it is actually literal and how much might be figurative, you don't need to worry too much about that. Because when you read what the, when you get the general drift of it, it's really obvious. God is sending judgment on the earth and it's very bad. And he's in control of the judgment that he's sending on the earth. And there are some things that trigger this judgment. And these are things that anybody who reads this can understand. What we need to know is really easy to understand. That's why, remember, this book is not the covering, it's the revelation. And so we understand. What we're going to understand today, one of the things we're going to understand clearly is this is an account of God pouring out his just judgment or his wrath on the earth. And so you have the first trumpet in verse 7 and the vegetation is struck. You have the second trumpet in verses 8 and 9 and the sea is struck in a horrifying way. You have the third judgment in verses 10 and 11 and the rivers and the waters are struck. This would be the fresh water, you know. And then you have verses 12 and 13, the fourth trumpet where the heavens are struck. And then you have this little... uh, eagle or angel, depending on which manuscript you're looking at there, that's saying, whoa, 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 if you think this is bad, wait till you see these other three judgments that are about to come when these trumpets are sounded. This is what we do know. We know this is horrifying. We know that this comes from the hand of God onto the unrepentant people on earth, and it is horrifying. We know that it is like nothing else that's ever happened in all of the world. It's a horrifying, it's a terrifying, it's worldwide, and it's not really hard to understand. It's just hard to process. It's hard to receive, to realize how horrifying it's going to be. Now, I want to cut immediately to implications on this, because I don't think we need a lot of explanation of that. But here's the question that we always ask. It's such a pregnant question, such a powerful question. That is, what what effect would this reading, the reading of this, have on the original audience? What effect did God want this to have on the original audience? What, what how would the original audience have received this truth that they heard? That was a, was a good question because that when we answer that question, and we've done this a lot. When we answer that question, we're really close to the answer that's so important to us, and that is why does God have his people, us, right now, sitting humbly before this passage? How should this affect your life this week? How should this affect the way you think about the earth and the world and the culture and your nation and your home and this church? 
that's the purpose of, of the Scriptures, is that we would be aligned to the purposes of God. And the, the, so the Scriptures are not so much a teaching as they are a story. The Scriptures are a grand story that has teaching embedded in it, but it's basically a grand story, and it's a singular theme. And God is heading toward His uh, kingdom, in the, in, uh, His ultimate and eternal kingdom. And he's gathering the redeemed into his kingdom. And he's judging those who've rejected him. And this is the story. And what should we, So how should we see ourselves? So I just have like, I'm going to give you two really obvious applications or implications from what's really obvious that we've read here. That during this time, incrementally, God is going to pour out these horrifying judgments and they're going to affect the earth in so many different ways. So what is the question? So what? If I teach other guys about preaching... I will always say to them, imagine some young person sitting there with their arms crossed in front of them going, so what? The adults think the same thing, but they don't look that way. They look really nice. They nod, and they're thinking about their lunch, you know. <laughs> like, but so what? Okay, so, so since we know that this is the way God is, and since we know that God is merciful, and we know that God has made a merciful plan to rescue people out of this, and since we know that God is also just, and it's just and right and proper for him to do what he said he was going to do, and there's going to be judgment on the earth, so what? Okay, two things. One is this. I, I don't, there's a lot of different ways you can say it. Here's the way, I, maybe one of the ways I would say it today. And that is then, we that know that these things are true should live very soberly. I mean, isn't that just obvious? Isn't it obvious? If this is the kind of judgment that's going to come on the earth someday, shouldn't that make us very serious people? Shouldn't that make us very sober people? Shouldn't it make us ask the question, am I right with God? Will I receive God's mercy? Or will I suffer God's judgment? I mean, that's just obvious, right? That's just clear thinking. You, you're thinking, who's going to be the president? Does that really matter? No. Here's what really matters. When the judgment comes, what side will you be on then? That's what really matters. Yeah, you're thinking, no, the presidency. No, no, it doesn't. No, no. Does it matter? Of course it matters. It doesn't matter at all compared to this. Think about it. Your neighbors, whether they vote Democrat or Republican or whether they run Hillary or Trump or Cruz or, or Rubio or... Who are the other folks that, right? Whether you vote for girls or boys, uh, it, that, that's significant, of course. Everything is significant. It's not significant at all when compared to when we get to the end, does, do you suffer the judgment of God or do you enjoy the mercy of God? So that's a question that you should ask yourself this morning. Are you under God's mercy? Because you can be. That's the whole point of this book, is that God, the Lamb who was slain, this was the plan before the foundation of the earth, is redeeming to Himself a people who are clothed in His righteousness because they believed in Him. So have you believed in Him? Or are you still on that kind of performance track where you think, I'll be good, and in the end of the world, you know, He's going to see if I was good enough, and the good guys are going to be here, and the bad guys are going to be here. That's nowhere in the Bible. But the Bible teaches, the Bible, the Bible stories, you know, they aren't moralistic stories. This is how you should, that, the, are, how many of you are reading through Genesis right now? Because you're first of the year, anybody? Yeah. And did you notice that the characters there, the good guys and the bad guys, are all kind of bad. You ever notice that? Yeah, have you ever noticed that? Yes, no, uh, yeah. Help me now, you know, because, like, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, in other words, you have a, a, a character that's introduced kind of heroically, and he does something really bad. Because the Bible is not a book of moral stories, like, here's a guy, you should be like him because he's moral. That's not the trajectory, that's not the, 
trajectory of the Bible. That's what the Bible's teaching. The Bible is creating, the stories of the Bible are like creating a thirst for the one who will come and fulfill the righteousness of God. And then we, we believe in that one, the lamb who was slain. And so you, the, the implication would be, if, if this book is true, and the judgment of God is going to come on this earth, on all who have not received Christ, make sure that you have received Christ. That's all. I'm just saying, today, flee to his mercy. Now, now that, would lead, that would lead us naturally to a second thing. Many of you would say, that's me. I mean, I said that. You said, amen. You, you consider yourself a believer. Then, are those you love safe? Hope and I are on the way to church this morning, and I'm giving her the short version of this. You thought, there's a short version? How do you get that? Well, you want the whole thing, I'm sure. I was giving her the short version, and I said, if the house was burning down, and you knew that your mom and I were in it, and Hazard, our faithful Yorkie, um, we know you would save Hazard first, but then, but, but obviously, you, you'd get us out of the house. You know, you know, it's just obvious. It's natural. I mean, people, the, the first thing you would think at a time of catastrophic judgment would be, what about the people I love? Sometimes I think we lose sight. In all of our, what shoes am I going to wear? What team am I going to root for? How, am I going to get a raise this year? How do I stay out of the hospital? In all of that, you know, the stuff of life that really keeps coming at us. I'm glad I missed the snow apocalypse. You know, that kind of thing. The, the one thing that you should always keep in mind is, Am I under the mercy of God? And the people that I love, are they under the mercy of God? People that know what they're doing, that's the way they think. People who are rightly aligned to the heart of God and the mind of God, who have heaven in their vision and the throne of God in their vision, that's what they think. That's what they think that little waitress that waits on them. They don't just see a a young girl that's trying to make a living. They see a a person with an eternal soul that's going to spend eternity with God or eternity suffering the judgment of God. And so, are you safe? Are those that you love safe? Are they under the mercy? And then, maybe a, another implication that kind of goes from this implication is, in, who else would God want me to rescue? Since you've been given the truth, and it's possible for you to rescue other people from the judgment of God, who does God want you to rescue? I'm looking right now at a guy, just like I was looking over the congregation, I saw a guy who one time was lost and far from God, and a co-worker went and told him about God. And he's been a blessing to all of us because somebody was bold enough to not just golf with him, but to tell him about Jesus Christ. And he rescued him. And as a result, he rescued his whole family. And as a result, we have a faithful brother in Christ who's been a blessing to all of us because one guy who now is with the Lord went to... what? A, can you tell me what in the world do you do that's more meaningful and more significant than that? You say, well, it makes me nervous. Well, you can be really nervous if you see the judgment of God being poured out. But you see what I mean? We don't see the judgment of God. We just see, oh, the person's going to look funny at us. Well, it's going to matter if you really see the throne of God and the judgment of God. And you can look forward at what's going to happen. You can see forward into what's going to happen. Then that's going to make it. Then we're going to have more boldness. And we're going to say, am I safe? Are the people that I love safe? And who else can I rescue? 
That's what our church should be always doing. That's in our name. That should be in our DNA. This church should never stop doing that. We should do whatever we can to rescue as many as we can and never be satisfied that we have a nice church and good Christian friends that are good to us and we have this little cocoon that we kind of like get to every, every week where all the horrible things are happening out there but we're with our Christian friends. We should never be satisfied while there are still people who, who are going to face God's judgment someday and we live among them and we could rescue them. We could rescue them. Think about that. I just think we should rescue them. And that's my job. My job, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, it outlines the pastor's job. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what it says. And this is why I do what I do and why I'm going to say what I'm about to say right now. He himself, this is Ephesians 4.11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the purpose that they would equip the saints to do the work of ministry so the body of Christ would be built up. What's my job? As a pastor, it is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, to get you out there witnessing and discipling other people. You say, well, I don't know if I'm gifted for that. Listen, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be fulfilled. You'll never be uh, operating the way God made you operate unless you're part of a team that's seeing other people drawn to Christ. That's why we're doing this stuff. That's why we have this come, grow, serve thing. It comes right out of the scripture. We call it simple church. Another way of saying it would be like laser-focused church. We call it that. Why did I come up with this idea? Well, I didn't. I read a book about it. It's a great idea. Why did I, and, the, and these, these we're, we're saying these long before I came here, come, grow, serve. Why? But why this? Because I'm trying to obey Ephesians 4.11, where it says pastors equip the people to do the work of the ministry because they're never going to be, like their jobs are not going to satisfy them. They're only going to be satisfied when they're involved in rescuing others from the judgment of God and, and, and bringing them under the mercy of God. Can you imagine how fulfilling it would be if God used you to see somebody come sweetly to Christ and then their family became a Christian family and their kids became Christian kids and they had all that that means in this life and in the next. Can you please tell me what in the world would be more exciting than that, more meaningful than that, more significant than that. And it's my job, it's our job as leaders in the church to help you, not just to exhort you or make you feel guilty, but to actually show you how you can do that. And that's what we intend to do. That's what we are doing. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Dispatches from the Front. It's about a, it's a, the fellow would go to the mission field where he would hear um, that there were usually dangerous mission fields, uh, like Detroit. Amen, brother? Bill's back there, mission to Detroit. And that can be dangerous in, in Detroit, though we love it. But yet, going to a place, kind of wading into a place that needs the Lord, and he would journal about it. He's very gifted at journaling. Tim Cassie is the guy's name. So he would journal about this. A friend read his journals and said, man, these are just great writing. This, I just feel like I'm there. And he got laid off. He was a videographer. He, was a, he could take pictures with a video camera. He got laid off and he said, why don't I go with you to these places and I'll take video and you write the stories. And so they came up with these really well-received videos called Dispatches from the Front, where they're going to places in the world that are very hard to give the gospel, very dangerous to give the gospel. And they're telling the story of Jesus to people and people are coming to Christ and churches are being built and he's going and he's showing, we're showing some of these on Wednesday nights here. But anyway... This is what he did. I'm reading the book right now, Dispatches from the Front. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book. One of the things he told was a story. And we're always kind of thinking, how can I equip the people in the church to get in on this wonderful, eternal thing and so that they get the satisfaction of knowing that they were a part of that? 
And, and, and that's why when I read this book and he told this story, it was so, it, it so caught my heart. Here's what he said. He said he heard about a guy who had been converted and he went back to his own people in the village where he lived, in the mountain, mountain village where he lived. Because he wanted to tell his family members and friends about what had happened to him. So he went back to this village and then a few, a few, relatively short few years later, they discovered that there were like churches in all the villages throughout the mountains. There was a movement of churches all throughout the mountains around this guy's village. So they hiked up into the mountain and they said, what is your strategy? Like, how did you do this? I mean, if we could cap, if we could capture that strategy, maybe write a book about it, maybe give it to the American church, maybe we could like, turn the tide of apostasy back and see people coming to faith, you know. So the guy goes hiking up into the mountains. He finds this fellow. He's very, very normal-looking guy. He doesn't really look outstanding at all. He's very sh- kind of a quiet fellow. And he says to him, so tell me your strategy. And the guy looked at him and said, what, what's a strategy? I'm not sure what you mean. He goes, you know what, what, how did you go about starting all these churches? And he said, well, I really never, in, you know, intended to do that. And he goes, well, well, how did this all come about? He goes, oh, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. All I do is this. I pray, and then I meet people, and then I tell them about Jesus. And the guy says, okay, but seriously, but then how did the church start? He goes, well, I would pray, and then I would meet people, and then I would tell them about Jesus. And when they get saved, they go to their village, and then they would pray, and they would meet people, and they would tell. I think maybe we're making this too hard. What about this week we tried this? I've been doing it this week, and that is pray. Get up in the morning and say, God, here I am. You know, I'm just me. Not Billy Graham, just me. And if you, if you let me, I, I will talk about you. And then go, intentionally go meet people. Uh, Kevin is sitting back here. I don't want to embarrass you. But I prayed a prayer like that. And on a Sunday night, turning the lights off. And I said, God, let me meet somebody who wants to talk about you. And I walked down the parking lot. And Kevin was sitting in the parking lot. It was after dark. And we've had great talks about the Lord. He's been coming to church. And I just embarrassed him. He's probably going to go away and not come back anymore. Don't, don't go away, Kevin. Isn't that awesome? If you pray that prayer, God might put somebody in your parking lot. God might put somebody in your life. You pray, and you meet people, and then you tell them about Jesus. And a lot of times the people are like, thank you. Somebody's like, I don't want to hear about Jesus. Okay, pray, meet somebody else. Tell them about Jesus. Find somebody who wants who will listen to you, and then tell them about Jesus. And, and we're going to be giving you... Um, how, we're going to be showing you how to do what we call discovery Bible studies. In other words, um, imagine if you had a friend uh, or a, a couple friends and you went to their place or whatever and you took them through and you, together you read through seven stories of the Bible about people who were far from God and how they got close to God. And that's all you did. You said, here, I'll read it to you. You read it back. We'll talk about it a little bit. Next week we'll read the next story, the, the next story, seven stories about people who were far from God. And as a result of being far from God, they had brokenness in their lives. Most of the people that you know are far from God, and as a result of that, they have brokenness in their lives. And when they read the stories from the Bible about people who are far from God and have brokenness in their lives, there's going to be kind of the call of the eternal that's going to be kind of touching their life. And if not, you, you love them and you move to another person who might be open to that. What if in our church of over 500 members... This year, dozens and dozens of those little discovery Bible studies happened. They came, let's say, out of the grow group that you're in. And as you're talking in the grow group, uh, then you say, well, let's figure out who we're praying for that doesn't know the Lord, and let's have the Bible studies with them. In other words, the Bible storytelling with them. And you told seven stories, or you read seven stories, and they told you back. And in that time, then you can say, are you still far from God? And let's say those that then wanted to come to know the Lord, you took them through seven more stories about people who followed Christ. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, when he followed Christ, what did he do? 
right after he started following Christ, the Ethiopian eunuch got baptized. So when people follow Christ, what's one of the things they need to do? Get baptized. But you just read the story to them. So you can imagine how this appeals to me. I'd like to train you, which wouldn't be really hard to do at all, about how to tell seven stories about people who are far from God and, and have the people tell them back to you and see what would happen. And then when people respond to that, tell seven more stories about how people followed God and see people follow God and follow the Lord in baptism. This is some things that we're going to be doing this year along with, as a part of our simple church strategy, our focused church strategy. We're going to be doing that this year. I'm doing that already, and we're going to be doing that this year to give you tools, a little tool about how to have a gospel conversation with somebody. But probably the question that you're asking, because you say, well, you're really outgoing, Pastor. You're kind of an extrovert. I'm not that way. And I get that, and I respect that. Thank the Lord everybody isn't like me. But there are people who are normal, right? And these are the normal people that we need to depend on. Not the weird people, the, no, the normal people. So, uh, not the extroverts, you know, but, the, but the, the rank and file, the common man, you know, and woman. Because you're the one that's embedded with the people that are dear to God. And you work with them. So, let me give you this. What would be the one thing? I know you're asking. You're thinking, well, can you make this easy for me? Okay, yes, I can. Let me tell you one thing that could trigger all of that. Can you guess what it is? You're right. You pray. Now, let's take our Bibles and look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. I want you to see something amazing. Amazing. Notice this. Verse 2, saw the seven angels stand before God. To them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, was given much incense that he would offer it with what? The prayers of all the saints. Isn't that kind of weird? Think about that. If you're thinking all these catastrophic things are going to explode on the earth, how are we going to get this started? Well, the prayers of the troubled, martyred saints under the altar is what we're going to use. That's what the Bible teaches. I believe the prayers it's talking about here are the ones referred to earlier in the story. The prayers of the saints that are crying out, they're imprecatory. God, when are you going to judge? God said, watch this. I'm going to answer that prayer. God intended to answer that prayer, and this is the way God works. Did you ever ask yourself the question, if God is sovereign, why do I pray? Why pray if God's going to do stuff? Because this is how God's sovereignty works. God, when he intends to do something, puts a prayer burden on the hearts of his saints. They pray and pray, and stuff happens. That's exciting. Now, all that, so that's the implication number two. Implication number one is we should live soberly, and implication number two is we should pray faithfully. Because prayer is powerful with God. It's prayer that he uses to start this judgment. He acts in answer to prayer. Don't ever let somebody discourage you about the power of prayer because your prayers are heard in heaven and they activate God's work in heaven. And they're pleasant to God. It's like fragrance going up before him. It pleases God. Think about this. You don't need to know anything more than that. God says this. When you pray, I'm pleased with that. And when you pray, I act. So we should pray. That's what evangelists should do. This year, we should pray more than we've ever prayed before. More often, more frequently, more faithfully, more fervently. More for one another and more for lost people. And more for God to do what he said he was going to do. We should be a praying people. That we, and you think, well, it seems like I ought to do something more. I think what happens is when we do what God said first, pray, God then will show us, he'll give us opportunity to do what we're supposed to do, and we will be able to do it, and we'll know what to do. 
praying more, praying more faithfully, frequently and fervently. And practically, here's what I would say. And here's just a takeaway for you. This week, when you go about your business and you're talking with people and it's natural at all to do it, say to them, is there anything? I pray a lot. I talk to God about things. Is there anything I can pray for you about? Say believe to believers. And then when they say what it is, make a note of it, pray about it, and then check back and ask them. And if they're unbelievers... And they're saying, well, I'm not sure I believe in prayer, but this is the problem that I have. And you pray, and then you check back with them. You're already having a spiritual conversation with them, and it's about what they're interested in. That's powerful. And how far of a leap is it then to get into a gospel conversation when you're already talking about spiritual things? Then you say something like this. Here's a little transition line I like to use. Let me show you something. I have led people to saving faith in Christ by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit by saying, let me show you something. And they're like, what? And I go, let me just draw it on the paper for you. Lynn, where's Lynn Weeks today? She sits back in here. Did you move around without permission? You moved over there? Like, Lynn, do you have your paper with you today or did you? Let me see it. Hold it up and just show. This is like my, one of my favorite things to think about. Lynn came to my study one day. I took a piece of paper. I drew a little picture on it. You've seen it before. The bridge illustration, how you describe the gospel to somebody. And, you know, are you having trouble getting it out? Yeah, and it's yellow. It's on a yellow card. I, I drew it to her. And, you know, whenever I explain, I go, let me show you something. And then I explain. And she was very eager, very open, very interested in knowing that she was born again. She, I, I drew the little card. Do you have it there? You can't find it. It's like, okay, well, tr- trust me. I wouldn't lie to you. I'm a pastor. Anyway, so, so, uh, so she, she, she took this. I, I drew this. And I always watch people like, are they going to ask for it? It's fun. And often the happiest part is when they go, can I take that with me? I'm going, yes. And they take it with them. And God has changed people's lives as a result of that. I was thinking about Lynn, I was thinking about you this week, and Phil, and you know, knowing that you're right with the Lord and being baptized here and following the Lord. And, and it always thrills me to, to remember that Lynn's brother is a, with the Lord now, but he was a regular Baptist pastor, like our, like our kind of guy. He went to the seminary where my dad went to, and he prayed that his sister would have assurance of salvation and be baptized. And she does. Why? Well, because Nancy invited her. There it is. <laughs> because Nancy invited her and because somebody said, let me show you something. Isn't that exciting? So I'll teach you to draw those little circles or whatever they are. And you can say, hey, let me show you something. Just show them. See what happens. Anyway, I'm excited about this because I believe that we could be on the threshold of a season of fruitfulness in our church. Not just where we do things, programs that we like for us and our kids, but so that we go out and we actually find precious people who are far from God and don't know him yet. And we tell them the story, and then they pray, and they meet other people, and they tell them the story. And when we get on the porch in heaven, and we're on a, in a rocking chair on a porch in heaven, and we're drinking the coffee, it's going to be really good in heaven, I'm sure of that. We're drinking our coffee and we're on the porch in heaven. We're going to be telling the stories over and over again. Do you remember? Do you remember that time we had that, we had that uh, Christmas program? And we had that special Christmas program. And that was the thing that that family came and they, they saw that Christmas program. And then do you remember the time that we all went the, over to their house and we said, we told, told them the seven stories. And do you remember when they started coming to church? And then do you remember the the day they got baptized and their whole life changed and their whole family changed. If you have a better story than that, by all means, tell me. 
I've never heard a better story than that. I've never heard anything more meaningful. I've never heard anything more exciting. I've never heard anything more significant. At the end of the day, when our life comes to an end, what will matter the most is, are we under the mercy of God? And are our loved ones under the mercy of God? And were there some others that we went out and reached, and they are under the mercy of God? And when we get all confused and it's difficult for us, we back up and go, okay, God, you're God, and I'm just me, so I'm going to do what? I'm going to pray. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to say, God, use me today and send me. So, so this week I, I got a chance to do that. I don't want to say too much here because I didn't ask permission, so I'll be a little vague. But I got to make a few calls, you know, like I always do. I, I called on a fellow who literally was touched in the deepest part of his soul because he has found an expression of Christianity here in this church that he's been hungry for for a long time literally says to the workers at the hospital, go away, I'm not done talking with my pastor yet. <laughs> oh, that was kind of cool. But you didn't, but that's okay. I, part of, uh, yeah, you'll get excited when you see the hand of the Lord in your life using you to touch other people. So let's ask God to do that. Maybe you think of somebody you love a lot, a family member or a friend that's far from God. And maybe you call them this week and just say, you know, I was listening to a message on Sunday about how bad it's going to be when people miss the rapture and they face the judgment of God. A lot of people have gotten saved because the fear of God was put in them when somebody described what the Bible teaches about this. And one day there will be an eternal kingdom, and that's the one that we should be thinking toward. If you guys would come. We should be thinking towards the ultimate expression of God's rule on this earth. The kingdom of God is the word that's often used. So this week, whatever it is that's going on in your life, whatever it is that you watch on television, you see that happens, whatever it is that frightens you, whatever it is that burdens you, whatever it is that tempts you, imagine the throne of God and the Lamb and the four and twenty elders and the great multitude which no man can counts. And the worship and the praise of God in the eternal kingdom of God. That's what we're about, folks. Let's stand and sing about that before we go home today.